welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring everything mysterious, fringe, and weird in the world. Today on the show, I'm going to go over the legend of Hollow Earth, the Agartha legends. Agartha is such a vast topic, I'll have to come back to it many times, but for now, I'm going to go over a decent amount of information I've collected concerning this ancient myth. When thinking about some bizarre but fascinating and sometimes reviled theories that go against established reality concerning our planet, the Flat Earth Theory is probably what pops into mind. However, there are many fringe theories concerning our world. Many Nazis, for example, believe that the universe was a never-ending battle between fire and ice, with the Earth representing this. And there is also holographic universe theory, which says that when we look out into the stars, the matrix essentially only renders what it needs to to convince the onlooker. But few capture the imagination of humanity like the hollow earth theory does. The inner earth. Legends of the inner earth span many civilizations and supposedly originate from the dawn of civilization. The most well-known form of this legend is Agartha, an inner earth kingdom. In many cases, we humans on the surface world are exiles or outcasts in this lore. Like, think of how the English sent their undesirables to Australia back in the day. That's analogous to us on the surface. Funny enough, even an American president approved of an expedition to discover the inner Earth. John Quincy Adams. Obviously, nothing came of it, or did it? But it shows how seriously many people have taken such legends. Many Hollow Earth researchers claim that the Earth is more like a spherish donut than the perfectly round ball in space it appears to be thanks to gravity. And it's through entrances in the North and South Poles that one can find the doorway into the inner Earth. Now, keep in mind the importance of an open mind while also taking everything with a grain of salt. I'm not trying to say any of this is fact, it's just knowledge. So let's get into it. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Some say the planet is pear-shaped, but according to math being used by hollow earth people, the globe is not round, it's an ellipsoid. And indeed, the earth is more of a spheroid than a perfect sphere. Gravity can manipulate the ocean to make it appear more round. But with these rabbit holes we're going down, let's just say we need to throw out mainstream narratives. Because many times, the general public and their opinions on things don't keep up with science. Here's a quote from oceanservice.noaa.gov. Our planet is pudgier at the equator than at the poles by about 70,000 feet. This is due to the centrifugal force created by the Earth's constant rotation. 
mountains rising almost 30,000 feet, and ocean trenches diving over 36,000 feet compared to sea level, further distort the shape of the Earth. Sea level itself is even irregularly shaped. Slight variations in Earth's gravity field cause permanent hills and valleys in the ocean's surface of over 300 feet relative to an ellipsoid. End quote. Earth constantly changes over time and is very much alive with uh, activity. And it, with activity that science doesn't quite understand yet. The mathematics proving that Earth is a spheroid is kind of mind-boggling, but boring, so that I won't burden you with. And uh, I'm sure that flat earther believers are kind of raging at this, so just ignore it. Believe whatever you want. It's through the points of the ellipsoid that Hollow Earth comes to play in some cases. For example, not very long ago, world leaders started going to Antarctica. And of course, they have like their mainstream cover story. But others believe they are not going for the scenery. After all, there's nothing to see. And it is beyond cold. So instead, conspiracy theorists claim that the elite found an ancient civilization and a possible entrance to Agartha. They also say that the elite could have found, like, um, uh, frozen over ancient advanced technology from this civilization. And these theorists also find credibility that around holes at the poles, there's no flight allowed, both commercial or not. There's nothing that's allowed to fly over the pole. Some say that they do, and if you look at the maps and how they triangulate things, you can pretty easily prove that they're full of shit. But hollow earth believers view the earth as like a reverse donut in a way. When people fly into the pole or go into the pole, they actually just keep going as land goes further on within the planet itself. Flat earthers latch onto this too. But instead of the reason the land keeps going on beyond accepted maps, it's because the Earth is flat, obviously. In the hollow Earth theory, though, it just keeps going because we don't fully understand the nature of our world. However, in other such theories, the holes at the poles are much, much smaller. But to add to even further bizarreness, the land beyond the poles is not said to be icy wastelands or anything like that, but it's like more of just a lush, a lush atmosphere with a vegetation and a warm climate. And this brings me to the tale of Admiral Richard E. Byrd, who supposedly flew into the hollow earth itself. His expedition flew 1,700 miles beyond the North Pole. It was called Operation High Jump and intended to establish an American training and research facility in the South Pole. When he left his Alaskan base and went beyond, he found a land that was free from snow and was lush. It existed inside the polar opening. Government agencies suppressed all news on the subject. Here's what Wikipedia says about Byrd. Rear Admiral Richard Evelyn Byrd Jr. was an American naval officer and explorer. He was a recipient of the Medal of Honor, the highest honor for valor given by the United States, and was a pioneering American aviator, polar explorer, and organizer of polar logistics." End quote. On top of that, there's a lot of 
weird stuff concerning this legendary American. According to his diary, he was forced to keep silent on his expeditions that illuminated the existence of holes in the planet's poles. The Nazis had an interest in finding the origins of humanity and had already been to the poles, and with their defeat at the end of World War II, there, were, there was thought in the military that there might be a Nazi base there to discover. Neuschwanland, the last German colony. So there were many reasons for the expedition. In the book Hollow Earth by Dr. Raymond Bernard, the extent of this operation was more than unbelievable. Bird's expedition allegedly came across more land going within the earth and had abundant life therein. And within this land was the mythical Agartha. He even met with the city's leader, referred to only as the Master. Apparently, after the atomic bombs, the Agarthans became interested in the surface world, and the Master said he'd sent flying vehicles to investigate, aka UFOs. The Master said they had ways to access the surface world too, and these entrances are in many landmarks on the surface, such as the Great Pyramid and whatnot. And if you have any interest in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, then this is kind of cool. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then definitely read it. The Master said that the surface world was at the point of no return, and that those who have power would rather destroy civilization than give it up or share it. He speaks of a new dark age and the destruction of the surface world, but that the Agarthans will maintain the human surface race and keep a select number safe to rekindle their culture at a later date. Now, if you read these alleged diary accounts, it gets pretty fishy pretty quick. To me, it's far too perfect of a narrative, and people don't talk or interact in the way the author describes. Also, the Agartha legend pretty much originates from Indian lore. And according to the Indian spiritual timeline, we are right now in a dark age. Or actually, yeah, I'm wrong. That We are coming out of a dark age, but we have been in a dark age for a long time. Don't quote me though. I, uh, I, heard, uh, I heard it on a podcast recently that I was listening to that we're coming out of the dark age. In the book, The Great Polar Fraud by Anthony Galvin, he discredits Bird even reaching the pole from a mundane perspective. He states there's no way Bird flew as far as he said he did because there's no way he had enough fuel to do so. But if you believe the Agartha stuff and Bird's diaries, this can sweep aside mainstream prejudice. If it's one thing that they hate, the herd hates their little box shaken. Again, I'm not trying to tell you what to think though, but it's important to scrutinize everything with all knowledge available. It's also good to keep in mind the disinformation campaign by governments towards anything they don't want people to know. And then again, what about the people who flew with him? It was an expedition after all. Surely all these people wouldn't go around lying about it. And I could go on and on and I could make an entire episode about Bird, but if you're interested in him, there's a decent amount of work when falling down that rabbit hole. If you want to know more, here's some books of interest. Alone, The Classic Polar Adventures by Richard E. Bird. 
The Missing Diary of Admiral Richard E. Byrd, Exploring with Byrd, Episodes of an Adventurous Life by Richard E. Evelyn Byrd Jr., Little America, Aerial Exploration in the Antarctic, The Flight to the South Pole by Richard Evelyn Byrd Jr., Discover, the story of the second Byrd Antarctic Expedition by Richard Evelyn Byrd Jr. Byrd had a reputation for honesty, and all his expeditions were military men more than willing to follow orders. So what do you think? Is it possible he discovered something weird at the poles that the government wanted to keep hush-hush? Or could it be a purposeful psyop to throw people off the trail of what truly lies at the poles? After all, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, it turns out a lot of the UFO phenomenon lore is purposeful misinformation fed to believers by government agents. And quite honestly, the diaries of Bird may or may not be real as far as I'm concerned, and could very well never have been written by him, but his exploits are more up in the air. He could have also just been a con artist. Of course, it doesn't help that both the official accounts of the people who discovered the pole have been proven to be bunk, Cook and Perry, but separating the fact from fiction from the whole bird saga is kind of hard for me to do right now without like massive, massive more amount of time studying it. So let's move on to another narrative many people believe could very much be legitimate concerning a trip to Agartha, or the inner earth, the hollow earth I mean. And that is the book, The Smoky God, also known as A Voyage to the Inner World by Walter George Emerson. There's even more bizarreness concerning Agartha in this book than Bird. Emerson released his work in 1908, presenting it as true accounts of a Norwegian sailor named Olaf Jansen. Olaf says he and his father journeyed to the Earth's interior when he was young through an entrance at the North Pole and there they discovered a race of giants. These beings seemed amused at Olaf and his father, and were not hostile in the least. But even with such an alien race of humanoids interacting with them, they could not stop being astonished that there were freshwater rivers, animals, trees, and everything you can think of in association with our surface world. It was pretty much better than the surface world. Just days earlier, they were among one of the most frozen and desolate areas on the planet. Then all of a sudden, there was a whole new world. The giants welcomed them and offered food and shelter and whatnot, and it was an exhilarating experience, but otherworldly with uh, just like some sprinkles of fear. Olaf and his father were taught the language of the giants over time, and often overheard talk about a city called Eden, which... I'm sure you've probably heard it before, and yeah, it, it, the book says basically that that Eden is based off of their Eden. Not outright, but it insinuates it. For a year, they stayed in the giant city of Yahoo, and became fluent in the giant speech as well as culturally initiated enough to feel comfortable. The giant people were highly musical, and a lot of their architecture was geared or dedicated to song. To them, music was as valid as science is to us. Their written language seemed similar to Sanskrit of the East, and much of their style was oddly similar to ancient cultures. And that is, until one day, 
They were called to the city of Eden and taken before what must have been the leaders of the city or the giant people as a whole. Then, for two days straight, Olaf and his father were questioned about everything concerning the surface world, including which god they worshipped and technology and whatnot. Basically anything that you can think of, they were questioned about. Olaf also claimed that there was a sun in the inner earth they called the Smoky God, which was a sun far less potent than Sol, our sun. And that's where its name comes from because it's smoky. It was a dull red at dawn and in the evening, but more illuminated in the transition during the day. The smoky god was suspended somehow within the vacuum of the hollow earth in an unknown manner. Olaf mused it was gravitational or some repellent atmospherical force, but it baffled him. The giants called it the seat of the gods. The base was darker, with openings for deities to come in and out, and at night the openings shined like stars. The smoky god rose in the east and set in the west, just like the surface world sun. The giants said this was an illusion, because it was actually stationary. The movement making it seem like the smoky god rose and set was just the earth's natural rotation. Olaf was also shown quote-unquote flywheels, which destroyed atmospheric pressure, what we call gravity. Hence, once again, some UFO lore from all the way back in 1908. But it was apparent to Olaf that the giants were technologically advanced far beyond the surface world. Eventually, they met with the high priest, who also seemed like the ruler of the entire civilization. And he offered them to go or stay, and that if they wanted to, they would be shown everything they wanted as honored guests. Olaf and his father said yes, they definitely wanted to stay and check everything out. So the two were shown the entire country of the giants, and also offered once they were done or fulfilled with everything they wanted to see, they'd be assisted in their return, at least at the start of the journey. So they stayed for another year. During their journey across Agartha, they don't call it an Agartha in the book though, but during their journey in the inner earth, they found things mentioned in the Bible and Sumerian texts and things thought of as myth, whereas there they were real as day. But eventually it was time for them to return home. As promised, they were assisted in being set out on their way, but hardship was awaiting them nonetheless. Olaf's father perished in a shipwreck when they tried to make it back to the surface. But Olaf himself was saved from drowning by a passing boat, though quickly thrown in irons after saying what he and his father had discovered. They just assumed he was insane. Then later, when he returned home, his own uncle had him thrown into an insane asylum, where he stayed for over 20 years. After that, he never talked about it again. He never wanted to be locked up or persecuted like he'd suffered <laughs> so many years of his life. So he kept his mouth shut about the giants inside the earth. That is, until his coming death where he told the tale to George Emerson. And we'll conclude the Smoky God after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. 
$30 off weed with code PODCAST? Did someone say $30 off weed with code PODCAST? Amuse delivers over 500 high-quality cannabis products from the Bay Area brands you love at everyday low prices. You can also rest assured that everything will be up to your high standards. So what are you waiting for? Start shopping now at amuse.com. Use promo code PODCAST to save 30 bucks off your next order. That's A-M-U-S-E dot com. Hello, my name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. Okay, so when Olaf was extremely old and close to dying, he met George Emerson and befriended him and could kind of tell that there was something off, something different about him and decided to give him the full tale unfiltered one last time so that it could be recorded and pass on beyond his death. Well, that's the, well, that's the story at least. Emerson is a fascinating character because he was obviously a Rosicrucian by his coded language that's traditional from their line that only other Rosicrucians could notice and put together. Of course, he could have also been a Freemason. There's lots of weird in his other work. There's also kind of stuff that could hint that he was a Freemason, but he was definitely more than he seems at face value. The book is presented straight faced, and I'm not sure if Emerson was legit trying to say it was real or not. And Olaf was real, or I guess Olaf could be real and whatnot, but who knows? Let's just say in 1908, some people considered it an actual account, just like there are people who think it is now. Okay, so, so far I've not mentioned any narrative that actually called the city or realm Agartha. So let's look into the work of Marquis. I'm not gonna pronounce this right, but I'll try. Marquis 
Alexander St. Ivis de Elvader. My aunt married a Frenchman. I should have totally asked him how to pronounce that like a couple days ago. But I didn't. Um, he influenced many philosophers of the 1800s and early 1900s, including the legendary Rudolf Steiner, the guy that Hitler hated more than anything and couldn't assassinate no matter how hard he tried. But his book is The Kingdom of Agartha, A Journey into the Hollow Earth. The book isn't straightforward to read. With all the fluff usually found in such old literature, the Marquis has a crazy long and hard to pronounce name. But luckily, he mostly went by Saint Ivis. So I'm just going to go do the, call him by that for the most part, either Saint or Ivis. I mean, it's spelled Y-V-E-S. I'm pretty sure the Y is pronounced as I, but I'm not sure. In any case, correct me if I'm wrong. By the time he wrote the book, the man was already incredibly successful and renowned. Like Manly P. Hall, he too had written a book on the secret history of the world. Uh, I should have, I should have put a, like a note to the side. Uh, I think it's called uh, like the Jewish Quest or something. Sorry, but that's his like secret history of the world book, similar to Manly P. Hall's. But he did it long before Hall. He claimed to learn many esoteric secrets from Hebrew and then sought to learn Sanskrit. Sanskrit being one of the oldest forms of human language other than cuneiform. His teacher of Sanskrit was contacted through a friend, a man named Prince Harji Sharif. Hold on a sec. I'm going to go just fact check really quick because I want to make sure that I'm pronouncing some of this stuff correctly. Be right back. Okay, so I pronounced Harji correctly, and it was pronounced Saint-Yev, not Ivis. I was saying Saint-Ivis. Gosh. Oh, and the book, his book that he wrote on the secret history of the world was called Mission of the Jews. I'm in the middle of moving right now and just kind of threw this together as best as I could with, all, with none of my stuff available and all my junk everywhere and not all my stuff set up yet. So bear with me. Anyway, Sant Iev hired Haji through a friend to teach him Sanskrit, and the man's origin was pretty dubious and he was extremely mysterious. The only single picture of him that exists looks like uh, someone playing dress up, but it was obvious he was highly educated and many kind of assumed that he was probably royalty and he could have even been an Afghan. There's much about the man that people debate over. But Santiev's lessons started in 1885 and went on for just over a year and a half. But uh, esoteric overtones manifested in the studies immediately. The man wrote extremely elegant Sanskrit, and in his very first lesson, he wrote down something that was very intriguing. It said, by teacher and professor H.S. Bhagwandas of the great Agarthian school. Santiev was aware of Agartha by the works of a historian named Louis Jacoliat and how it was an ancient Indian city of Brahmatras, aka priest kings, which had the primordial human language Vatan, which also had other names and could be like how similar people say that Enochian was primordial, one of the primordial languages. And with Santiev highly interested in origins of sacred languages, 
This piqued his interest right away. On a lesson concerning the early parts of the Bhagavad Gita, a sacred ancient Indian text, Harji noted that the date of its context was 51,900 years, the dawn of the way things are. 50,000 years ago, people were made to all speak different languages, which split up humanity to all go their own ways and create unique cultures. This is mentioned in the Bible as the Tower of Babel incident, but there's similar legends throughout many ancient cultures. Eev asked if he could learn this primordial human language, or I mean, he at least asked if he could learn to spell his own name in Vatan. So Harji wrote it out for him and said, Here, according to your ardent desire, but really, you are not yet sufficiently prepared for Vatan, slowly and surely. End quote. Later, when he picked it up more, he could connect it to Hebrew and zodiacal and planetary symbols. Harji would reveal more and more and give a sigil of his representation on each papyrus of practice while revealing Agartha's secrets to the saint. Finally, however, the stamp of his approval started to get less and less abstract over time of the lessons, to the point that it was almost not recognizable from the beginning of their lessons. And when the seal of approval was at its most negligible, their studies abruptly ended. Harji did not want what he had told Iev to be repeated and no longer considered him worthy of the knowledge. Louis Jacoliot, too, was abruptly dropped after a semi-initiation into the Indian mysteries as, well, actually, it's more universal mysteries, but as I'd mentioned briefly before how Sant Iev had heard of Agartha, it is said that they were dropped from these teachings because of their inability to let go of their modernist prejudices. So they were disqualified in a sense. Sant Iev was unable to get over his cultural dogma and was set in his views that Judeo-Christian spirituality was superior to all others. But what Iev experienced before his lessons were cut off about Agartha is a fascinating tale, to say the least. Sant Iev had a dedicated spiritual practice and vast experience in esoteric disciplines, so he was the perfect candidate to be taught these things. It's a shame he couldn't shrug off his biases to gain the full understanding, at least according to our narrative, but I mean, how many people can actually shrug off their cultural conditioning? The name Agartha means inaccessible to violence and inaccessible to anarchy. There are different ways this can be looked at, but it essentially means only those who are wanted to find Agartha can find Agartha. It can never be conquered or entered by force or discovered through force. So, effectively, you don't find Agartha, Agartha finds you. It's said that if they wanted to, the dwellers of Agartha could destroy entire nations in cataclysm without ever having to fight. And to say where it is, is to expose one's ignorance. However, there are old subterranean realms that were once a part of its dominion, even under the earth of America. But there are secret passages to Agartha from many places on the planet, so that's nothing special. As I said earlier, 
Most of these passages are places like the Pyramid of Giza or the sacred space in the Himalayas. Those who are the guardians of such passages will never show the way to anyone, though many masters throughout time have utilized them. And interesting to note, essentially Agartha was at one point on the surface world, but later went down beneath the earth. saint Yves says in the book that Agartha has a population of 20 million souls. So it's not a small city, but a sprawling metropolis. The sexes are entirely equal, and all vices and lower behavior found in ordinary human society are non-existent. There are no prisons or penitentiary systems in Agartha. In the territory around Agartha itself, Iev says that a population of 40 million live in a similar higher nature. There is no such thing as a class or caste system, and even surface dwellers of the lowest social class are equally welcome as any other as long as they are worthy. The only thing that adds or decreases one's worth is merit to Agarthans. They also have incredibly high and advanced technology and even back in the late 1800s, I think, the late 1800s when this book was written, he's talking about technology that actually was invented within the 20th century, but not like they need the technology to fight off invaders if there were ever invaders to actually penetrate Agartha, throwing that impossibility aside. <laughs> they'd encounter defenders that repeatedly come back to life after being killed. So the residents are not human in a way that we'd consider them. They're also inhuman in other ways too, because they've evolved separately from the rest of humanity on the surface. One point of note is that they have two tongues and can say two different languages at the same time. There are tons of cryptic esoteric notions in the book and saint Eve makes some pretty bold claims, such as scientists of Agartha finding our own scientists to be practicing black magic. But then again, this is a super old book, so take that how you will. And the book gets pretty psychedelic too at times, like when he talks about going into the earth and there being a literal hellfire and using universal sacred language through hand gestures and utilizing special yogic abilities to breathe as little as possible. That's how you can enter and survive this area. And how the infernal peoples can be commanded to obey, if you know how. But this is just like the, the like a city area that, it's actually when I was reading it, I couldn't really fully comprehend what it what it was saying but it seems like it's not a lair under the earth it seems like because it mentions a city of these people so they're not necessarily agarthans the residents are a people of human shape and uh have igneous bodies who leap away in wings in all directions to perch upon gothic plutonian walls of their city these bizarre people apparently are used by cosmic powers to change the planet's layers to our benefit on the surface such as underground rivers of metalloids, volcanoes, mountains, rivers, and valleys, and whatnot. Anything like concerning primordial earth type stuff, even lightning. Um, there are, these beings are like elementals that assist in the primordial aspects of nature on the planet. Agartha is prophesized to one day reveal itself to the rest of the planet once more. 
though this is only when we've reached a state of balance in science and spirituality and stuff like that. Originally, when Santiev was going to release all the knowledge that he'd accumulated from Harji Sharif, he had it all set up and all the books out being printed and everything good to go, but at the last second, he ordered all of his books on it destroyed. The only reason it even survived was because he had one single copy that he uh, gave away that was then later released fully to the public. Now, just why he did this isn't really known, but people say it's probably because he was like threatened not to because the surface world wasn't ready for the knowledge or something. Like they didn't want the secret stuff to get out. I mean, use your imagination because nobody knows. He does, however, mention the Agartha briefly in his later work, but not necessarily or even close to the extent as uh, the stuff that he got from Harji. He was taught of somebody named the Master of the Universe that ruled Agartha, who was obviously like at a higher spiritual level than everybody else in the city. And who knows, it could have been this Master of the Universe that told him not to release the information at the time. And it seems that people have still been being like initiated into Agartha mysteries, but they're really secret. They guide us with knowledge and wisdom subtly and, and don't really reveal where the knowledge came from. Mission of India was released in 1910 to wide acclaim, even though Santiev wanted it destroyed and never to re be released at all. When I was researching this, I got kind of confused because the book was said to be called Mission of India, but my book is called The Kingdom of Agartha, A Journey into Hollow Earth. And yeah, they're the same book, just the name was changed. But for a second there, I was like, what am I reading? And I thought I wasted a bunch of time, but nope. Same thing, different name. Anyway, he was one of these emissaries of Agartha, though he didn't really reach the full level that he was supposed to because of his personal biases. And an interesting footnote is that it is suggested by some conspiracy researchers that Harji Sharif was in fact a renowned Islamic thinker and anti-colonial political activist named Sayyid Jamal ad-Din al-Afghani, 1838-1897. In 1885, the year that Santiev met Haji, Afghani was in Paris. This is confirmed, where he began publishing an Arabic newspaper entitled The Indissoluble Blonde. Among the members of the Afghani's anti-colonialist circle in Paris were Asians involved with the Theosophical Society, as well as Christian and Jewish Middle Easterners. Regarded by his enemies as an inveterate intriguer and political chameleon, he's also believed to have been associated with Madame H.P. Blavatsky herself. And it's interesting how Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society in general has their fingers in everything. Everything esoteric at this point in history. Though remember, this is just conspiracy and it's not confirmed at all, so take all that with a grain of salt. I just wanted to add it because I thought it was kind of interesting. And even if it were true, it still doesn't take away the, that he could have been an emissary of Agartha and from the Agartha Mystery Schools. Yeah, my throat's giving out. I'm going to take a break and go drink some water soon. Many of the spiritual people who have followed Santiev have said that he actually learned a lot more from 
from uh, astral travel, visiting Agartha, or astral visions, then he was supposed to, from what Harji had taught him, like more than what Harji had taught him. And then he might have like misconstrued some things. But Santiev thought that for thousands of years, Agartha had radiated synarchy to the upper world. Synarchy being an adherence to a socio-political system that he thought came from the Knights Templar. The first function corresponds to nutrition, and that is economics. The second can be defined as the will, and that is legislation and politics. Finally, the third corresponds to the spirit, and that includes science and religion. Synarchy stood in total opposition to government by brute force, that is, military conquest, political tyranny, sectarian intolerance, and colonial rapacity. And throughout his life, he spread synarchy as far as he could, wherever he could, and thought that we, Agartha wasn't going to reveal itself to the surface world again until synarchy was embraced. Synarchy, as Saint-Yev understands it, is the old dream of the meeting of the left and the right, of workers and capitalists, of scholars and priests, all under the same banner and in the same spirit. It is already, in some way, the myth of the defense of the West against itself in face of the threat of anarchy or government without principles. To Saint-Yves, the Knights Templar were faithful adherents to synarchy, thinking they too were emissaries of the mystery schools of Agartha. And as long as Westerners persisted in their chaotic, unprincipled government systems, Agartha would remain closed to them, other than a small few worthy. Hi there, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. We'll even give your podcast a shout out. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show, but most of all, thanks for listening. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? 
Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. Serpents of Fire, German Secret Weapons, UFOs, and the Hitler-slash-Hollow-Earth Connection by Gray Barker and Ruth Ann Leedy is a book that talks about Hollow Earth that inspired many, many people who researched it that came after. Gray Barker was a legendary ufologist, and this book used to cost up to $1,000, and it was kind of considered lost up until recent re-editions. And his co-author, Ruth Ann Leedy, is a heavy hitter too. In the later part of the book, Gray talks about Admiral Byrd and the possibility of the poles not being discovered when official sources say so. It's interesting how it was proven that the first two explorers actually did not discover the poles. And uh, this is in the mainstream. He states how the poles have massive holes indeed leading to the inner earth in ways mirroring narratives I've already said. However, Gray Barker and co-author Ruth Ann Leedy take a unique spin on the topic that I haven't really gone over yet, and that's that they postulate that the idea of the UFOs are interdimensional and the poles are gates to other planes of existence. They still say that they could be physical entrances to the hollow earth, but they also say that they could very well be non-physical or just non-this current vibration that we live in, in the third dimension. This is similar to certain flat earth lore, but I'm not going to digress. Many occult traditions indeed teach the poles are entrances into other realms. Leedy and Barker state some serpent people from Venus dwell there, which seems similar to Indian mythology, the semi-divine entities known as the Naga. He also says a few other interesting darker races may be down there, according to the lore including cybernetic beings and other cannibalistic monster-type humanoids. According to the authors, those who dwell under the surface could have complete control over the surface and we'd never know it. Gray asks if it's possible that beings older than humans exist within the poles and could have even seeded humanity itself. These beings, the stuff of legends of old like heroes who come forth and bring technology or new paradigms, or slay monsters and whatnot, like the old, 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 old lore. They could appear to come from the sky in like great ships kind of things, like in the visions of the Hebrew prophets. At all times, though, these strange people return to the hollow earth when done with their business. The book also states that it could be possible that they could have taken on the appearance of being coming from, like from outer space, just looking like space aliens coming to earth but actually being from the inner earth and just coming to push certain narratives before returning under the planet. The authors say that the hollow earth is where many UFOs come from, if not all the UFOs. 
and that there's much more that the population of Earth don't know about the poles than what they do know or are told. The conclusion of these two researchers is horrifying and linked to Hitler himself of all people. Apparently, there's a ton of Europeans who, till this day, don't believe that Hitler died the way that the mainstream narrative says. And if you do look at all the evidence, it's pretty fishy. There's very little that communists don't lie about, and the US government itself is pretty insidious, so there's a lot of speculation about what actually went down. I don't want to go too deep into this now, however you should definitely check out the book if this interests you. But yeah, according to the authors, a lot was going down behind the scenes concerning the World War II era that ordinary people know nothing about whatsoever. To which the secret space program stuff fits in here nicely. This narrative concludes that the UFOs are man-made, or a lot of UFOs I mean, they're man-made and of alien origin, coming from within the Earth. They've been guiding humanity a long time to keep them in a state of barbarism, with just enough to keep them going to build the population up for a later harvest. And by harvest, I do mean harvest, just like how we harvest meat from livestock. The authors give a lot of evidence for Hitler surviving World War II and escaping to South America with the Third Reich members and UFO technology given to them by the alien oppressors. The aliens themselves age very slowly thanks to what blood is made of, and blood is essentially the most valuable resource on the planet. When the time comes to harvest their livestock of humanity for their blood, there is a planned cataclysm where they will offer fake help to get humans to get inside their spaceships willingly. And after that is end game. Humans could have been reseeded over and over and over on Earth. Each time having a long couple like 10,000 millennia spanning civilizations and then boom. With then not long after the cataclysm or whatever it's staged to be this time, humans are reseeded on the planet. Hitler himself may have formed sinister deals with these aliens, they say, and the Fourth Reich may be a spearhead of these end times. Honestly, the insanity and malevolent evil theme of this narrative gives me shivers, but it's still really interesting. It's no secret that the Third Reich was into the occult, and the book gives examples of Hitler being involved in blood sacrifice and communication with dark beings. There is a creepy, weird old quote of Hitler stating that he has met the new man and he is terrified of him. These dark beings being the aliens inside the hollow earth manipulating humanity from the shadows, at least according to the authors. The Nazis were up to some pretty weird stuff before the outbreak of World War II. They'd already made a base at the pole, and there's a possible connection to their masters from the inner earth here. They explored the Himalayas and all over and could have found a handful of the secret passages supposedly leading within the planet. However, despite their alleged pact with the dark forces, the tech granted to them and their super weapons didn't come to fruition in time to save them from defeat. Well, at least open defeat. 
because in the book they did escape to South America and they have secret bases that they escaped to as well, even within the Hollow Earth. Them working for the Inner Earth people was far from over, and what the aliens require to be bargained with is pretty disturbing. The aliens are empowered by blood, and indeed much bloodshed throughout human history is for them in this narrative. But they don't need it all the time, just when practical after getting low. Gray and Ruth hypothesize that blood may be how aliens continue to live lifespans far beyond what humans are capable of. Though I instantly thought, why don't they just clone people then? I mean, clones for blood or whatever, you know? And just take blood that way. But then I remembered other ET lore where cloning actually tampers with DNA. And if you genetically alter things too much, it can really, really damage it. And, uh sometimes be unfixable. Kind of how some gray alien lore states that they do abduct humans in an intent to fix their own DNA. But I'm just throwing stuff out there. The topic doesn't receive much elaboration in the book. However, like in other ET lore, shadow governments across the planet could have also made deals with these things. According to the authors, the Nazis too are helping out in human breeding, like a, a hu new human breeding program. This new human that Hitler spoke of that he was afraid of is essentially a hybrid of humans and these aliens and maybe going to take over the planet, or at least take our place as livestock. But it's hard to conclude if what they need is blood itself, like literal physical blood or something more like metaphysical along the line of blood, or something like that the blood is made of that we don't really understand with our science. But the first chunk of the book is just a lot of evidence that they give in supporting the idea that the Nazis created working UFOs and escaped to Shangri-La, an impenetrable fortress built for the Reich, though not the Shangri-La from legend, mind you. Instead, the aliens may have been breeding a super race under the earth and, and a race that has slowly infiltrated us. Much of the abductions throughout the 20th century have been for genetic experimentation for such a super race. They state the men in black could be such beings or even the star children or Nazi Aryan breeding program people that uh, was started during their reign in Germany. In any case, the beings in Hollow Earth are absolutely in league with aliens who herd humanity for their blood, and the UFOs they utilize are easily as alien to ordinary people as those from space. The Nazis and even some modern governments possess this high-tech stuff to the point that they could easily stage a UFO-type alien invasion scenario. UFO researchers like Dr. Stephen M. Greer think that this is indeed what the shadow government will try to push with a false flag event. Greer states that with all the acknowledgement in the mainstream media recently of UFOs and whatnot, they're prepping people to fear them by always presenting them in a threatening manner. However, that stuff somewhat goes against the narrative of the book, but could be a situation where they portray one side as evil and one side as good or something, though the reality is reversed. 
if there is a shadow government and they're making deals with these dark forces, of course they're going to portray them as the good guys and the good guys as the bad guys. They're only going to do what benefits them in their little circle. The authors hypothesize the inner earth oppressors desperately want to keep humanity ignorant and unable to make preparations to avoid a cataclysm or even have any ability to resist whatsoever. They don't really want them to understand reality or what's going on in a general sense. So thought control is key to their plans, something the elite across the globe have become highly proficient at and could even have MK Ultra infiltrator agents in crucial places to assure trust in the public. Gotta remember, MK Ultra was proven a fact by the Freedom of Information Act and the experiments that they put people through is horrifying. So it's not a conspiracy theory, it's not hearsay, it's true. But Gray and Ruth say that the forces have always been giving humanity signs, though can only do so through symbolism for the most part. They have interacted directly many times in our history, but they primarily influence humanity from the shadows and through the manipulation of other humans in positions of power. According to Gray and Ruth, the Agarte, Agartha people, are said to be the sons of God, but what God isn't too elaborated upon, other than the vague mention of the Smoky God, the black sun at the center of the earth. He mentions them as gods or archons. But why do the gods need our blood? Blood sacrifice is a key feature across many ancient human cultures. Could it really be for mundane reasons that somehow add to the lifespan of the inner earth aliens or their masters that are real aliens? Could it be more metaphysical or interdimensional or esoteric? I have so many questions the book doesn't elaborate on. <laughs> In any case, though, I thought that this smoky god connection, the black sun, the similarities with the earlier tale by the Norwegian Olaf I mentioned being pretty fascinating. But then again, the authors would have been very aware of that book. However, the authors also talk about how this may have happened many times. So could any human survive a pole shift? Would the world become primordial? How long would it take for the cataclysm to go away and the world to become calm again? What about all the animals? After it's all over, are humans resettled on Earth once more to start the cycle all over again? Honestly, this book tripped me out. But it's easier to process if you read it like a sci-fi novel. Luckily, it is pretty short. It's a short read, too. Because it's... <laughs> it's cerebral and trippy as hell. today's episode don't let the darker conspiracy stuff in this episode make you paranoid or anything like that nobody knows what's really going on i have been looking into dr stephen greer's work lately and i find it pretty interesting even though ashley hates it i still force her to watch it with me though 
She had the audacity to say that the UFO phenomenon was low on her list of interests concerning fringe knowledge, and she wants me to do an episode on Missing 411. Um, I'm going to try and, in the next couple episodes, get her to come on and do an episode with me. Forcefully, of course. I must punish her and make her go over ET stuff with me non-stop until she learns to love it. This is the way. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and basically all podcast hubs. You look for us and we're there. If you can, make sure to like and comment or review wherever you hear this content because it pleases the gods of the algorithm. So let's look at a couple of comments real quick. Cranky Ray on the DMT Entities video says, I don't think there's any limitation to them. There's no categories for them. The list goes on to absurd things such as jeweled self-dribbling baseballs, basketballs, sorry. And uh, yeah, Cranky Ray, I agree, but people love categories and labels. It really entertains the imagination. I'm glad you enjoyed the video though. And Celestial Weavers on the King Paimon Hereditary Movie Analysis video says, He doesn't literally take their heads, they lose their own minds. If anything, he's doing them a favor and the symbolism is fascinating. I found that conclusion very interesting. I didn't even think of that symbolism for insanity. It's pretty deep thinking and I dig it. Ken Ami on the Nephilim Part 3 podcast episode says, FYI, in case it may be of interest, one of my books on Nephilim and giant-related issues is titled Nephilim and Giants as Per Pop Researchers, which is a comprehensive consideration of the claims of I.D.E. Thomas, Chuck Missler, Dante Fortson, Derek Gilbert, Brian Godwa, Patrick Heron, Thomas Horn, Ken Johnson, L.A. Marzulli, Josh Peck, C.K. Quarterman, Steve Quayle, Rob Skeeda, Skiba, Gary Wayne, and Jim Wilhelmson. Um, thanks for the, the link. Thanks, Ken. I'll definitely check that out. I'm keeping my eyes peeled for more Nephilim lore to make more episodes on in the future. So make sure you guys leave a comment and I might just read it aloud on the show. If you enjoy Cryptic Chronicles, even in the slightest, can you help out by leaving your own comment? The interaction makes algorithms like the episode and so on will. It'll just basically spread and grow the show better. Or if there's like a like icon or whatever, just please click it by headbutting the mouse. Anything you can do to interact with the content, please do so. It pleases the gods of the algorithm. And if you really, really like Cryptic Chronicles and happen to be awesome, then support the show on Patreon for just a dollar you'll get access to exclusive podcast episodes and depending on the pledge can even choose the topic of an episode and other awesome stuff. Just go to crypticchronicles.com and at the top, click on the Chronicler's Vault. It's a link to Patreon, so you'll be good to go. It really means a lot to me. Thank you. And speaking of awesome, I'd like to thank my current patrons, MJ Calvo, Adrian, John, Celestial Weavers, Alien X, Lorna Grubb, Paul, Linda Gonzalez, Angela Delaire, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, and Ashley. Thanks for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening. And as one of the greatest writers in the history of the planet once said, 
the main thing that I learned about conspiracy theory is that conspiracy theorists believe a conspiracy because that is more comforting. The truth of the world is that it is actually chaotic. The truth is that it is not the Illuminati or the Jewish banking conspiracy or the gray alien theory. The truth is far more frightening. Nobody is in control. The world is rudderless.